welcome to Everyday Horror, where we watch at least one horror movie for every day of October in this, the year of our Lord 2017. And then we talk about them. My name is Danny Roth. I am a contributing editor and online personality for Sci-Fi Wire. And I also watch a lot of horror movies every day of my life, not just in October. But this is the time for podcasting, I feel. I have two people in the room today. We're going to be talking about a 1973 classic that sort of sort of shows the extension of how far horror movies can go and what horror means. That movie is Don't Look Now. And before we talk about it, I'm going to have these two people introduce themselves. Hey, um, I'm Jordan Searles. Uh, I run a little website blog thing called Fishnet Cinema. Um, I run two podcasts on the Shady Lady podcast and the Bad Romance podcast. The Bad Romance podcast is actually about movies, bad romantic movies. Didn't I write screenplays and all, all other kinds of fun stuff. Hi, I'm Antonella and Sarah. You can find me on Twitter and there is water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, so... Again, the movie that we watched today is 1973's Don't Look Now. Um, It's a good movie. The thing that we talk about at the beginning of every podcast is whether or not you should watch a film before you hear us talk about it. Um, Sometimes even a good movie, I would say you don't necessarily have to. This is a film that I feel, in order to really understand the tone and the pacing and what it is that they're trying to get to in the narrative by the end, I think you have to watch it first. Otherwise, I just don't think you'll get the same value out of the podcast. Would you agree? I'm a person who feels that if a spoiler ruins something for you, uh, the thing itself wasn't good to begin with. But this is probably the first property I've watched where I don't want to talk about it if you haven't seen it. I want you to get to the end. And I don't because I came in here without knowing the ending. I didn't spoil it for myself because I didn't have time to. And I'm glad I didn't. I mean, I would say um, I agree with the sentiment that if a thing can be spoiled, I hate the concept of spoilers. This is like a whole other piece of territory yeah, that we're, that we're taking to spoilers. But this is it. If if a film and I, you know, this started with the sixth sense, which really bothers me because the thing is, yes, absolutely. If you. If you can afford to not know what the end of that movie is, yes, you're going to get a better viewing experience out of it. But um, that film ushered in this weird spoiler culture or at least exacerbated it to, I think, starting to get to the point where we are now uh, is wild to me because that movie, even if you did know, it's still a pretty good movie. Like if you know the end of Sixth Sense, it's a visually arresting film. The acting is great. It's got a really good pacing. Like it's a good movie. You can still enjoy it. Uh, don't look now if you know what the plot is if you know where it ends up I think you can still enjoy it but just like with The Sixth Sense although to a lesser degree um, I do think that it's better to be able to experience it because it really is um, it's sort of the opposite of like your big budget popcorn movies that we've been existing with from Jaws on forward because it's not designed to be something that's like and here's a big moment, and here's a big moment, and here's a big moment. It's really, it kind of washes over you. It's these scenes that are sort of letting you understand um, what these characters are feeling. And I think it, it draws you in in an, emp- an empathetic way. It gives you that like empathic, like, 
I understand these people now. I know why they're struggling in the way that they are. I think if you if you rush it otherwise, you can't. So this is a movie, I guess, also if we're going to do like, uh, not trigger warnings, but like a thing for people to be sort of aware of. This is about the death of a child um, is, is really sort of the driving element of this film. These two parents, these two uh, married people uh, lose a child at the beginning of the film. There's a drowning accident and Donald Sutherland, who is ostensibly the lead, uh, sort of has like he sees he's he's looking at these stills um, of images of Venice and he sees something that gives him almost like a glimpse, like a vision that something bad is going to happen. He sees somebody wearing uh, like a red jacket, like the one that his daughter is wearing outside. And then there's an accident. He spills something and it looks like blood. And he, it's like right on top of the person and he freaks out and he runs outside. And indeed, this daughter of his has died and drowned. And this is the setup. And what I like about the film is that that's a really, you know, we watched another film, Nelly, you and I, that starts with uh, a family death, a double death. Yeah. But um, I think that this film deals with the constant oppression of losing a child in a way that almost no other film I've ever seen has. It's like this. And do you ever see there was a, there was like, like early aughts. There was a movie called in the bedroom. That was a drama that was all about losing a child. That yeah, also, yeah, I've seen in the bedroom in the bedroom. And I think that this film is kind of, I think in the bedroom kind of borrows a little bit from don't look now. Yeah. That was like 2001. Yeah. 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 Um, I think it's a very hard thing to get right. So that's the first big thing about this movie is that it's dealing with this and yes, there are horror elements, and yes, there are supernatural-esque elements, um, but everything, what makes it tight as a drum, I think, and what makes it so effective is because you are able to feel constantly what these people are feeling. It's very much the intimacy of grief. Right. Of shared grief. Um it's so weird to talk about this movie because usually I go like plot point by plot point or death by death when you're talking about a horror movie. And this is really very non-traditional in that yeah, way. I mean, it's not really, I'm not saying that there's like not a plot, but it's more like, it's kind of like, um, I don't know who said this first, but it's kind of like emotional beats. Right. Is kind of how it kind of how it unfolds because it's just like, you know, reactions, conversations, looks, you know, just like experiences. I mean, I would say the big one of the big turning moment is when um when um the the wife Julie Christie meets the two women in the restaurant. That's like the big moment before and and after that there isn't a whole lot of big moments until near the end. Yeah, I think it's sort of interesting because I mean there are moments that I think are are important. But again, they're what they are is you know, even if they're big in my mind, they're still quiet. So um, the scene that you're talking about is pretty early on. Uh, we've had a really big, it's almost, I, I, I like that they do it this way. One of the strengths of this film is that um, for all the ways in which it takes its time, it understands when you need to sort of smash forward a little bit in a way that's almost jarring. So, you know, this this young girl dies. Donald Sutherland is tripping in the mud, holding her dead body uh, his wife has not figured out what's going on yet, and she comes out, and as she screams, realizing what's happened, you immediately jump forward, and you're seeing like a jackhammer going into stuff, 
uh, and now we're in Venice. And Donald Sutherland is in the midst of work, and some time has passed, and they're in a different place, and they have, I guess, you know, you have a sense immediately, like, I guess they're trying to just push on. Whatever happened, the, the early stages of that grief, we are skipping past, because that stuff we know. That stuff, I think, people have showed in film before. But this, the long-term effects of grief, we don't always see. So I like that. And we don't like from that point, it's like, okay, they seem to be kind of normal. They seem to be all right. And then we get to this restaurant sequence when it, wherein we are introduced in a more meaningful way to the idea of there being something of the supernature in this story. And um, there's wind blowing that it's got got the wind the windows open and then he closes the window donald sutherland the doors blow open and it's it's what's interesting about it is i think it's it's meant to sort of indicate this idea that you know he is trying he's like it's cold it's cold like he's trying to keep out these feelings that he can't deal with that they can't deal with but like if he closes the window the door immediately blows open like it's just this feeling of something that's unavoidable yeah and the idea of like pushing back at something and ignoring a thing and 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 that's his journey the the entire way, which leads to the tragedy at the end of it. Spoilers. Right. Yeah, because I mean, an, an interesting thing about it is that his wife is very, very open with talking about their daughter and is willing to talk about their daughter with strangers with the with the two women that they meet when she, that she meets later. And a lot of what Donald Donald Sutherland is doing is not really wanting to talk, kind of wanting to move on and be, well, not move on in in like any like regular sense, but move on in a very like, we have to keep living our lives. We both have work to do kind of way. And she just, and she wants a little more than that. She wants conversation. She wants closure. Well, I think what's interesting is I'm not sure that she quite realizes that that's going to be her coping mechanism until she encounters these two women. And that was the scene that you brought up, Jody. So I would like for you to sort of talk about why that is a big sequence. Talk a little bit about what happens in it and what is sort of interesting about the way it plays out and how it's shot. Well, it's because, well, it's like they're they're at the table and um, there are these two women at a table nearby and the women keep on looking at them. And it's very weird. Like, it's very creepy. That was around the time that I was like, oh, is this about to become a ghost story? Like, what is this going to be? Is this going to be like, I wasn't really sure. It's just these like ominous women. And one of them is um, one of them is blind and like constantly smiling. I think she smiles through most of the movie, too. And uh, they meet and I'm trying to think does something. How do they all end up in the bathroom together? Nella, do you remember? Oh, yeah. So it was that when the when the wind blows open the yeah. door after he closes the window, something gets blown into the eye of one woman. Although a part of me wonders if it's actually that or, or if it's just they were they were trying to isolate the wife. Yeah, I think to they, talk to her and have this moment with them because once they leave the restaurant, they're like, "I'm glad we talked to her," or yeah. they have that moment. Well, because like, yeah, because like once they're once they're in the bathroom, it's very much like it's very much like they're trying to be casual about it, but it's very clear that they want to talk to her and they want to speak to her. And um, the um, the blind woman is, is is clairvoyant. They say, and she says that she can see the daughter. I think she names the daughter. It's Christy, right? 
Um, well, she, she does not name it, yeah, but, but she, she says just, like, "Oh, I saw like the red slicker." And, okay, yeah. okay, yeah. Um, she says that you know she sees the like the hair like very very descriptive, and Julie Christie's like, "Wow, you see my daughter," and it's interesting like how open she is to open to it like i was very fascinated by julie christie in this movie because she's just like oh you want to talk about my daughter okay that's great and it's just like i mean later on she gets a little bit more emotional when they argue about it but she's her calmness is something that i was really fascinated by and and it's just like these women are saying something to her that could that could like be upsetting i mean depending on like what you believe and like and like I don't know if she she doesn't worry about being swindled. She doesn't really worry about like somebody trying to mess with her. She doesn't. It, it's it's just like a very it's 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 a little tense and a little weird, but it's almost like sweet because she's so happy about the interaction. Right. So this is what's great about it is twofold. I think for one the fact that she reacts the way that she does to them um that it is a kind of relief to the point that it's such a big emotional release for her that she then passes out as yeah. soon as the interaction is over yeah. i think what's great about that is even though this is this is a, a long sequence a long conversation uh, in the bathroom um it tells a much larger story and that story is what the coping mechanism has been leading up until that point. And it's, I think it speaks to the fact that she has been going along with Donald Sutherland's plan to just carry on. Yeah. I think that he has really closed a lot of doors. I think that he believes, you know, I never get the sense that, that Donald Sutherland is playing a bad guy, but I do think he's playing a man who thinks that his wife is on the same page as him yeah. on how to cope with this. And he's wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause then it's, like there's the discussion of like her pills and like, I mean, like not to say that medication is in any way a wrong solution, but the to me the implication is like, well, we didn't try talking about this first. Right. He lean, <laughs> he leans to it very quick. So that's the one thing. And then there is another element that is because she is not distrustful of them it puts the responsibility onto the viewer, right? She's very keen to sort of explore this. And as a natural result, somebody has to be distrustful. And it's not immediately Donald Sutherland's character. Like, he's not openly wary right away. So it becomes you, the viewer, because you know that you're watching something I think naturally it's very difficult to not be aware of genre that gets attached to something. This movie is often got this horror pedigree that it's known as being an atypical horror movie. So if you know that at all, you immediately are distrustful of these women because yeah. something has got to be wrong somewhere along the line. I know it's two old English sisters living in, in Venice, you know, and they sleep in, you know, matching twin beds. Like, and there's something's and, not right. And it's, and it's fucking eerie that this woman who is having visions is smiling about the dead girl, right? Like she means well, ultimately, but it is unsettling. It is unsettling. I think for the viewer, every time I watch it, it's, it's, even if you know the entirety of the story, it is very chilling. And I like that. And I think that that's one of the things that really works for the film because she, because she, the wife 
you know what? Let's just start using the character names here. We'll look them up and then we'll be able to do that. So that's Laura Baxter. It's Laura Baxter and John Baxter. These are the two main characters of the story. So the fact that Laura is so calm and relieved by this puts the weight of the tension onto the audience, which I think is a really great trick. It's a classic 70s trick, too. This is 70s filmmaking through and through. Oh, my God. With the zooms, man, so many zooms. And I wasn't I wasn't even mad at the zooms. I was loving them. No, yeah. it's 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 fine. It's fine. The zooms are great. I love that. And that is very classic 70s. And, and you can tell because anything that you see overused by Wes Anderson is something that was used in the 70s first. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wes Anderson. Wes does... Anderson fucking loves the 70s, baby. He is a, <laughs> he is a fan. I have never put that together before. But yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. He... I just watched Moonrise Kingdom the other day. And man, he loves a zoom. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my God. Watch Royal Tenenbaums. So much zoom in Royal Tenenbaums. Holy shit. It's a lot of zooming. Steve Zissou is like, like Zissou starts with Z, I assume, because Zoom. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole other, that's another podcast, the Wes Anderson podcast, uh, something that, that no one will listen to. Wes Anderson needs to direct a horror movie. Oh my we God. Well, they've it. already made the joke about that. They did a, a bad SNL sketch about, I mean, actually it wasn't bad. It was not a bad sketch where it was Wes Anderson doing a horror movie, but he should do it. He That'd be pretty fun. He needs to do it. Yeah. No, I'd be really into it. Well, in the meantime, <laughs> um, we get this movie, which is from the 1970s and, yeah. is, and is probably, honestly, better than anything Wes Anderson's going to come up with. But um, no disrespect, Wes. But mm -hmm. that is the first big scene. And then um, there was the scene that I felt that we kept referring back to throughout the night as we were watching this film, which, oh, is, the which is the sex scene. So this is a... Boy, Hattie. So what is great about this, again, we have to think in terms of horror as the larger scope of things. Horror as a whole is very much known for sex, especially now because, you know, we're looking back and when you think of horror movies, people tend to think of 80s horror movies and 80s horror movies are all about the sex. There's so much about sex or sexual repression. Tits are out. Blood is on them. That is a big thing. And even then, even like if you look at like 60s horror movies, there's a lot of sex. 90s horror movie, like sex is a big part of it. Like that is a big aspect of pretty much the genre all the way through. And yet this movie, when it deals with sex in a way that is pretty explicit, uh, it feels tonally, stylistically and aesthetically 100% different from any other horror movie I've ever seen. And indeed, I think it stands out from almost any um, filmed, non-explicitly pornographic sex scene I have ever seen. Would would you all agree with that? Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, well, well, Nella, I feel like you should talk about it first. <laughs> I, I mean, I just don't think I've ever seen nudity used that intimately and yet not uh oh god what's the world um titillatingly yeah <laughs> it yeah. was not for your pleasure it was for the the character of the two people who are married in the room and their emotional intimacy and this like just the idea of this is what you do you just 
you know, you're both in the bathroom naked while one's taking a bath and one's brushing his teeth. And then like, and then you have sex. Oh my God. He went down on her. First fucking move. He just goes straight down on her. And it's just like, do you know how hard it is to get that depicted nowadays? Oh my God. It's, it's so difficult. I complain about this all the time. And it's just like, it's just there. Like, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what you do with your wife. You go down first. You go down on her. Of course. Of course you do. My God. Yeah. It was nice seeing it and it not like, because the first time I think I ever saw somebody go down on someone in a movie was like blue valentine and it was really nice that it like wasn't it wasn't blue valentine (laughs) non-blue valentine cunnilingus thank you i I don't have to like incorporate it with like sad grizzly bear music hey yeah (laughs) i mean all i can think about is like you know all right so she's taking a bath and she takes the pants off and there she is in her panties and you're thinking okay here it comes like the horror nudity right because there's an expectation yeah because it's coming right and then you know like he walks in and he doesn't have a shirt on and we make the joke of like oh yeah equal opportunity nudity her 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 and then turn and then she's in the bath and you could see a tit and you're like her her there it is yeah yeah and then you start getting like full donald sutherland like to the bush so much donald sutherland there was definitely bush in the ashes out Out, like you see yeah it's all like there's a lot and what's great all right so my i would say just before we continue for me personally as a uh as a five plus years married person i found um this scene from top to bottom from stem to stern i found it very erotic in fact it was really hot to me um because it's very it's very real it reflects the 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 real uh, mature long-term sexuality that comes of being in a married couple or being in, in a married relationship um but uh i do like that it is actually uh this equal opportunity thing you know like if we're gonna if we're gonna be particular about that stuff and there's no reason not to be it if in 1973 this was possible it's very funny to me that people seem to struggle with it now i mean there's no reason to not if you're gonna have a scene of nudity it's very it's very strange to act as though when men and women are having sex Men always have their clothes on and women are completely naked. It's not real life. That's not like I'm sorry that for some people male nudity is uncomfortable. There's no reason for that. It's not necessary. That's okay. Like uh, like if you just get used to male nudity, friend, you're going to be fine. It's not that nothing bad's going to happen to you. But what I really I like that there's that scene. I like that there the initiation of the sex is that she's like, you still have toothpaste on your lips. And what I really liked, which was which is also before the actual proper sex, is that he leaves the bathroom and then is sitting at his desk, still naked, and the maid comes in and he's like, oh. And I was like, oh man, how many times have I come out of the shower with an idea on a script I was working on and immediately ran in like just like with my still wet ass on the seat and being like, man, I hope this is like, I hope I'm not messing up the seat with my wet ass. Like as I'm trying to quickly jot something down, I was like, this is real. This is a real thing. The realist. Like, yeah, like nude creativity. And then just I was in the bathroom and you know what? I'm going to do a thing before I put on my underwear. And then you get Donald Sutherland, cunning linguist. 
Uh, which is great, and then the, yeah, like also his wife's pajamas were adorable, and oh, she's yeah, just like, laying in bed. She's fucking cute. Yeah, she's completely clothed at that. Like she's in her pajamas, and they're like top and bottom pajamas, and he's completely naked. And eventually, the clothes come off. But what's interesting again is that he is the naked one. She's clothed. She initiates with him. She is the one that's in control of the initiation. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really great portrayal of the maturity of two adults having sex in a way that is mutually respectful. And what's cool is that they sort of intersperse there. So they're having the sex scene and as they are having sex, they are also showing the end of the sex as they are buttoning back up to go out into the world. And it's just really, it's such an interesting juxtaposition. It's filmed in such a fascinating way. It really is. I mean, I would say bar none, the best sex scene I have ever seen in a movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a sex scene I've enjoyed more <laughs> in a like, movie. Like, it was weird. Like, we're all we're all here watching the sex scene, and I was like, you know, it's this so respectful that I didn't feel awkward. Like, I wasn't sitting there going like, man, this is kind of weird, this is right, so guys? Real. All I could think... I was fine. All I could think was before, like, it was initiated and they're sitting there and she's in her pajamas and he's buck naked. I'm like, you know, before the camera started rolling, like, he was just like, I can't believe how, like, you're cold and you're wearing clothes. It's so warm in here. I could, like, hear that conversation you have as a couple. Sure. Of, like, what are you doing wearing those pajamas? Isn't it warm in here? I'm dying over here. Yeah. I could hear it. <laughs> yeah. It's a very good sex scene. <laughs> okay. I'm, all right. So we can cap on that. I, I'm sorry that we talked for a really long oh, time no, no, about no. this it's, sex it's scene. It's perfectly fine. I just don't know. Like, I, I don't like, like y'all have been really excited. It's been very cute. So cool. <laughs> I'm just saying in the year of our Lord, 2017, I get really excited when I see a man go like, like down on a woman real fast. Oh yeah. I want that more in <sighs> movies in general and without doing it because he thinks he's going to like get something better out of it. And that's the toll he has to pay. He's just doing it because like, yeah, no, you, you yeah. I, I, I feel confident that she is satisfied when that night is over. Yeah. I feel that she is feeling good about herself when that experience is done. She has been taken care of both physically and emotionally. Yeah. Um, anyways, so, and so is he, I think that anyway, you get it. Yeah. Sex. It's good. So, um, this I feel is the moment wherein you're supposed to be like, okay, so they're a unified front. Things are cool. Uh, and that is, it's a really interesting way to sort of set up the fact that like, you know, this shit can't last, you know, that there is no way that things are going to stay 100% trustworthy this way. And so we get to this point wherein their disconnect is over these two women because um, Laura is really, really game to find out more about this. And John is 100% distrustful. He gets to the point where he says, you know, I don't trust this. And, and Laura is basically like, yeah, well, you know, like maybe our daughter wouldn't have been dead if not for you. And it, and he's like, cool, 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 cool. He's, he says, he says, thanks for the memories. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is great. Yeah, it's a really good delivery, and it's not shouty. This is one of the things is that there's not a lot of screaming in the movie. It, like when when shouty stuff happens, it's really it it happens for a reason. He doesn't yell at her when she kind of tacitly implies that maybe their daughter would still be alive if not for his his inattentiveness. He basically is just like, 
we both know that that's not cool, that shit that you just said. Anyway, I'm peacing out. And also, I think that he takes it as, like, she says it, and he goes, okay, I get it. You want me to fuck off so you can do this thing that I think is a bad idea. Okay, have it your way on your own head. We both know this. I know it's a bad idea. Eventually, you're going to figure it out, so fine. You want to say this mean-spirited thing? Cool. I'll see you later. I still love you. This is fucked up, but okay. And it's interesting because this really sets up this notion of, you know, like him trying to be cool, but he can't keep cool because he really tries to trace it down. Like he does not, he wants to be able to be like, I'll let her figure it out. But he's just really freaked because, and this is this interesting, again, supernatural element that at the same time as we're experiencing this blind woman having a vision where she's for some reason, like really massaging the hell out of her breasts uh, as she has it. But also um, that Donald Sutherland there, they're kind of revealing that he is also a person that has the sight, the gift, the curse that is the sight. Um, And And that it, it being something that he's, he's been suppressing and ignoring probably. Right. Again, because we've set up this idea from the start that he is, that is sort of his nature. Um, so we, yeah, we get the sequence wherein the women are sort of trying to warn Laura that something is up, that something's not good, right? Like it's gone from, uh, oh, your daughter Christine is happy to, oh, your daughter Christine is panicked because she thinks that something is going to happen to John. And now we're in a whole different situation. And now we've reached the the moment where we're warning to get out of Venice, to leave. Right, yeah, that they need to leave. And Laura is really, at this point, she has really gone all in. All Every chip she's got is on black, you know what I mean? Like, she is just like, that's it, okay. I am 100% in on, this shit is real, we need to go. Like, when the, when the blind psychic says, leave, you leave. That is her perspective. Now, I think that's interesting, um, but it's a pretty big turn. Um, do yeah. you think it makes sense? Do you feel good about that? Like, is there any, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, are there any moments that ever ring false to you? Anything that feels artificial ever in this film? Anything that jumps out at you that you're like, I'm not sure. I don't, I can't think of anything. Can you know? That's not how you pull a body out of a goddamn river. Oh, okay. oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Upside down ass first. I saw this person's like, ass. Like, okay, pro tip. If you ever see um, an NYPD boat out in the river with a long line dragging behind it, pretty good chance it's a body. Because you don't pull that shit out of the river until you can keep it out of the public eye. Now, you know, it's Venice in the 70s. God only knows, like, what yeah, nonsense Yeah, but that's a pretty, it is a pretty weird sequence. Okay, it's so, the, so, yeah. so this and, and is... And everybody yeah. can see that body coming out. Yeah, So here is, weird. this is the other, other thing that's going on, which is that... Um, yes, so it becomes known that these these twins, or not twins, but these sisters, um, are of the opinion that Donald Sutherland's character, John, is in danger, and Laura believes them, and one of the things that lends a credibility in her mind is that, A, uh, John has seen a vision of their daughter, or that's what they're perceiving, they see what appears to be a child wearing a red slicker and then they find a dead body 
and she goes, oh shit, there's, and we're here, we're here for this murder. This is bad, right? Like this murder is happening. Well, what I enjoy is that there are several instances of the slow creep of something's not right in Venice. Right. Um, first, it's uh, they're they're traveling along a canal and and they are stopped and they're told to go another way and you see the police um, fingerprinting a balcony and you're like, oh, what happened here? But it's it's that uh, spectator thing of well, nothing to see here. I'm just gonna go the opposite way, but I got a bad feeling about this. Right. Because and, again, a little goes a long way. You don't need to beat people over the head with it. Yeah. You don't. You don't need to be washing the blood off the. <laughs> not cobblestones because <laughs> there's no cobblestones it's it's just a just yeah a it's canal. um but uh it it builds that and i mean and also the fact that you're filming in venice which is a very old city it has this like veneer of of decay and rot on it and there's this beautiful beautiful description of it one of the sisters gives of my sister doesn't like it, and this is me paraphrasing my sister doesn't like it she describes it as as like a leftover aspic filled with dead people (laughs) or or like something to that effect. Yeah. And just the idea of a leftover aspic, which is, is a form of jelly of a gelatinous um, meal with either meat or fruit in it is, is delightful to consider a city in that way. In my mind, it's so rotten. I love it. It, it, it's sad. It's sad. this, This film, I think, um, has a very deft way of satisfying appetites, both subtle and gross. And that is a great gross moment, that gross descriptor, right? And it doesn't go too far with it, but it's really, it's a creepy thing to say. And it, and it does, it does conjure up, I think not just a, um, a vision, but also a smell and a taste. Yeah. That's yeah. what's great about it. And that's pretty gross, but in, in the way that you want a horror movie to evoke in in the right um in the right amount. So yes, so we're dealing with supernatural, we're dealing with visions, we're dealing with what appears to be crime and murder happening around the city of Venice. And so Laura concludes, we 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 got to go. And uh John's like, nah. And she says, okay, well, I'm going to go because their son, meanwhile, has had some kind of accident. Well, what I love about that is the perfect out for both of them. You right. know, it's the perfect out. Your your son has been injured back in England because they kept him in school in England while they, you know, mess off to Venice to continue his work. And they're both parents. like Right. And again, you- <laughs> it, it, yeah, it explores exactly, it explores, the again, the same point of disconnect that they're always having at this point phase in their life which is that Laura knows that or believes that they need to stop there, there needs to be a point wherein they sit and they continue to work the grief and John is like no absolutely not because I have accepted what the grief is and the only way out is forward but to the point where he can't even be a father to his son right and that's the thing is that he doesn't realize that this is you know that there's more than one path forward that Laura's idea of of coping isn't actually a pause. It is a form of moving forward. It's just a different vision than what he has. Uh, and so her vision of, of moving forward is going back, dealing with their son, and getting out of Venice, whether or not he's going to come, that he's going to come with her or not. And it's so interesting because she does leave and it really unhinges him. It, it's only by the grace of the fact that she 
is acting the way that she is, that he can act the way that he does. He needs her to be that way. That's sort of the interest. That's sort of the fascinating thing about the relationship. Um, I don't think he's gaslighting her, um, but I think that he manipulates her in his own like way that he doesn't even realize he's doing because the fact that she is emotionally exasperated by this stuff means that he can always be the one that's like, you got to chill out, man. We got to keep going. You know, he's able to do it. And I think that there's a moment wherein, you know, his wife is like, they've seen her, you know, she's out there. And he goes, he, Christine is dead. My daughter is dead. She is dead, 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 dead. And not, it reveals his emotionality, but it also reveals exactly what it is that he is always trying to push on her. Again, I don't think in an aggressive way, I don't think he means to be hurtful, but it benefits him for her to behave this way and for him to behave the way that he does because it fits his narrative and it allows him to keep the kind of control that he wants. Well, I mean, yeah, it seems like for the most part, what he really wants is a normal life. He wants to He wants to get on. He doesn't want really any like abnormalities, strange conversations. He doesn't want to speak to any mediums. Like he's just trying to live the most normal life that they can possibly have and you know be healthy and you know there was that scene where um where she's just like maybe i should take my pills again he was like yeah no definitely definitely take your pills they're right there (laughs) they're right there and then like he has a glass of water like he's ready for her to take the pills Yeah, yeah i was just gonna bring that up like that scene was was really struck me um Especially as, you know, as she, mim- <laughs> she goes to take the pill and she, she drinks the water and then cut to her sliding the pill under her sleeve. Um, yeah. Great, great. Like. Perfect, perfect visual. Yeah. Like, and, and for it to come after this, this moment where you see the intimacy of their marriage and then you see where it's falling apart. Right. This is the distrust. And that's the thing is that both of these things can be true in a marriage. Right. You know, and and frankly, it doesn't take a death of a child for these things to both be true. This is, you know, that's the challenge of being with somebody long term is that sometimes, you know, you just get to dark personal places and it, you know, you might go through times where it's not easy to communicate everything exactly as as you know, you probably should. Um, But this is what's so fascinating, again, is that she is the one that's taking this initiative. He is the one that's that's staying closed off. And yet, we say that he doesn't that he wants to get back to a normal life. Most of him wants that, but uh, there is a turning point, and it and it happens in drips and drabs. He is, I think, unseated by the the dangers that are happening in Venice by seeing a body get dredged up from the water. Um, and once his, near death and, experience and, and yes, and especially once his wife is gone, that he is, you know, he's working on a mosaic and there is an accident when he's up on this, this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, scaffolding. Yeah. But he's, it's, yeah, it's, he's, he's it's way up there. Safe scaffolding. It's <laughs> scaffolding. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is that we were watching it and now you were like, you couldn't get me up there. Nuh-uh. Absolutely not. So you, the, 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 it's a, it's a very common sense anxiety. Like you don't. It's not like a final destination sort of thing wherein there's a Rube Goldberg of death that's about to happen. You know that something is probably going to go down, but there's nothing about it that feels unrealistic. It's just there's an accident, a thing falls on the scaffolding, and now he is just in this protracted scene of grabbing onto ropes. And it really goes on for a while. It's not an instant of time. It's him... 
is he going to fall? Is he not going to fall? And the way that it's filmed, it really, you don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, the way that this film is done, like, especially with that scene, because it's just like, things don't just happen in the movie. Like, you feel them happen. And when he's, like, falling, you feel that fall, and you can hear everything going down. It's like you're in the experience with him. It reminds me of the scene where um, Julie Christie falls, like, on the side of the table, and, like, you see all the wine pouring out, and you hear everything clank, and then you see, like, a pool of liquid fill on the table. Like, everything moves slow so that you can experience it. Yeah, and what's interesting is that there's a parallel, um, which I, I it took me a minute to realize that they were trying to achieve. So Donald Sutherland... Um, is very good at moaning and exasperation and stress and panic. He does it in a way that is very real because it's not just like, it's not just horror movie screaming. It's not like, it's not like a scream queen kind of thing. Um, And when he is on the scaffolding and then grabbing the ropes, he's going like, "Ah!" and if you think back, it sounds almost exactly to the sounds that he's making when he's pulling his daughter out of the water and panicking and crying. It's a link back. He's going, it's, it's almost, he's experiencing, he's lost his daughter and now he's almost lost his own life. And he's had a very similar, the trauma is very similar. His reaction to the drama is very similar. And now you start to see him unravel very quickly because not only has he experienced something that immediately takes him back to that loss, but he no longer has his wife to be able to grab onto, to rely upon, to know that she's going to have the reaction that she's going to have, which forces him to button up and be the one in control. There's nobody there to require him to do that. And so now all of a sudden he can't do it. And now he's losing his fucking shit. And he starts seeing visions and he sees, he sees the women on a boat with his wife all dressed in black. And he thinks, is my wife really back in England? Like, or wherever she is, like where the fuck where is everybody? What's happening right now? And he starts to doubt. He starts to really fucking doubt where she is. And he goes to the police and he starts asking around. He's trying to track down these women. He calls the airport to, and right. the plane was full. You know? Right. So he thinks that she wasn't actually on the plane. And now he's like, is my wife lying to me? Did these women kidnap them? Kidnap her? Like, what's, what's, what is reality? And for him, reality is starting to unravel very quickly. And simultaneously, because he seems to keep being in positions wherein he's asking these questions and his wife is missing and he seems to be trying to like put a blame on these women, the police start to go, like, this is the same guy that um, gave a statement uh, around the same time as there was one of these murders. And they start to think, is this crazy motherfucker the killer right now? Because he's acting really shady and weird. So they start tracking him. And I think the film is just weird enough that while it's not a high risk possibility that he is killing people and we don't know it, you just really like he's losing his mind. You're like, I don't know what to trust right now. Like I'm not, it's not full vertigo that you're in, but you really aren't sure which end is up. You are starting to wonder if that's where the ending's going. Right. You you know, you know that something bad is, you know that we're not headed towards a, a, a happy ass conclusion or it's very unlikely at this moment. And so you start to wonder which direction we're going to go. And it it really is touch and go for a while. And he's losing his mind. He's checking around. And then all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, he gets the phone call. And it's like, oh, yeah, son's fine. I'm coming back. 
I'm chill. Yeah. His wife was in England the whole time. And now all of a sudden she is the one that's pacified him. She's the one that's now she's in the position of strength because she went and saw the son and she was like, right, we still have a child. I am still a good mother. Things are okay. I am outside of this space where I'm not next to these two women who are telling me all this stuff. I can chill out. And now he's in full panic mode and she's the one. And it's, it's a cool role reversal that they've decided to do. Um, and I think that's another strength of the film is that they can find those moments where that can happen. And I think this is what's interesting is that it's classic horror in that, you know, when there's a, when it's like, ah, everything's okay. Things are not okay. That's the moment when Freddy Krueger turns into a car and pulls mom through a tiny, you know, window and a door, you know what I mean? Like, or Freddy Krueger's the one that's driving the school bus. Freddy Krueger's going to show up and do something. Somebody's got to come out and slice you. That's, that is, you know what I mean? You know, Jason's not dead. Michael Myers suddenly pops back up. You know, he comes out of the flames. Like, you know you're headed for something like that because that's how horror movies work. Well, because and he's still searching for answers. Like, I mean, even though his wife calls him and she was in England, he still he still wants those answers. Even when he finds the the two sisters finally, and like he he's like, I'm so sorry, I I you know because they're in the jailhouse because he had given a description of them. Right, and he and thought like, that they were involved in a kidnapping. So now the blind one is is actually been taken into custody. Yeah, and so you know he comes and he is talking with her and taking her back home effectively, and yeah, he's calm and he's and he he seems okay. But he is very interested in what she has to say. And I think that now, again, the roles have reversed. And while I think that Laura is less intent upon thinking about this other thing, I mean, not that she's completely ex- excused it as, as being not real, but that it's sort of found its own little role in the larger picture of her life rather than ruling it. He is completely ruled by the idea of visions because this woman is saying like, yeah, you you also have this this gift. That's that's why some of this stuff is happening to you. And he's starting to believe it because he's seen stuff that he can't quite explain that he doesn't feel comfortable with. And he needs he needs something because he really has been turned upside down. And then we get this great ending wherein he drops off the blind lady. His wife's going to come and find him everything seems hunky-dory and then the blind woman has you know a seizure and she's like you got to get him go get john back go get him back go get him back go get him back he's in danger this is it this is the moment and uh laura sort of gets pulled into that sequence and she's racing trying to find him and he again sees the red slicker and has this moment where he goes ah like, I don't know what this is, but it's something important. I I must chase this. I have to find out. And so he runs and he chases and he chases this, what appears to be a crying child, and finally makes it to, like, this little dank, like, no escape spot. And it's it's tragic because you know, you know that this is bad because you've seen horror movies and it's a, it's clearly a dangerous spot to be in. And I mean, first off, like guys, like he walks up into this room, and then you have this and Blair Witch moment. <laughs> yeah, it's very Blair in Witch. the corner facing the wall, and you're just like, "Well, I know this came first, but I know this is bad." <laughs> right? Yeah, like when that when whatever is about to turn around is not what he thinks it is, and indeed, 
it's a small person. It's a small woman. We went in Bruges. Right. And it turns, so it turns out now. that, yeah, this killer that's been making their way around Venice is actually this a small old woman who is just full on psychotic and is a serial killer. And he looks and she just kind of like, sh- like smiles and like shakes her head in this weird sinister way and just stabs him to death. And it's fucking brutal and scary because you really, because your brain goes, wait, what? That was the thing. You were like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I was like, well, think back. And yeah. then, and, and then it all starts to make sense. And they show well, the yeah, visions like from of the very beginning, the red, the red figure in the picture that is what he sees. And it's her. And it, yeah. That's what he's seen in the image is this woman. And he yeah. doesn't realize that, you know, the very reason that he's in Vegas, in Vegas, in Venice that um, boy would have slipped. Uh, that he's in Venice is in a way because of that. The reason that he had the first vision is because of her, and the way that the vintage, the vision takes its shape is all built around this moment. He has been on the path to his own death from the moment he has that first vision, and the and then there is the realization that the the vision that he'd had of his wife still being in Venice dressed in black with these women is because they were on a funeral boat for his funeral. Yeah. Oh man, and then it's just that 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 beauty of a good tragedy where it's like you had these opportunities to turn back but did you really did you really Yeah, have could the he chance? really have gotten out of it? You really don't know. I mean, that's an like Jody, do you do you think that there was really do you think that this could have been avoided or is this just one of those things where it's just inevitable? Um, well, I mean, uh, the film seems to really set it up as if it's inevitable because it kind of just like bookends with the red. We begin with red, we end with red. It's both signifiers of red. Yes, by, by the way, I, that's, that's why I brought up Sixth Sense at the very beginning of this was because I was going to be able to bring it back up again at the end. This is like M. Night Shyamalan, I'm 100% positive when he made Sixth Sense. This was the film that he was thinking of, 100%. Um, especially with that use, that pop of color, that specific pop of color to represent something that is maybe not necessarily trustful, that represents a danger. Um, not that, you know, red is notoriously a, a positive color in most people's minds, but... Um, it really, it really had occurred to me that that's where M. Night Shyamalan was going. Like when he was making his movie, he must have been thinking about this. I haven't seen it in such a long. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so I would have to rewatch it, which I might do just to, just to see. Um, yeah, it's, see those parallels. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's, it really is. I think it's one of the one of the. I mean, Donald Sutherland really was was boy. He was living the high life in the nineteen seventies. Wow, I mean his. I mean he was he was great. His acting was great. His hair was phenomenal. It was out of this world. <laughs> yeah, it was. He had some next level hair in that movie. Yeah, um, yeah. His coats were insane. His that scars, like this, was a styling man. Oh yeah, also- that was a whole other level. Yeah, because his he had great suits. Um, everybody, there were great costumes in this. This like it's too bad that um, we didn't have Raven for this one because um, they're really really impressive costuming choices like it's a very uh visually arresting film excuse me um man i was trying to think what else he did in the 70s other than like a million things but yeah donald sutherland really was at the top of his game i mean i think about this and i think about invasion of the body snatchers 
that um, these are like two films that are in the horror genre that are atypical, that aren't quite like anything else that had come out before or since, that I think still are influential and defining. To answer your earlier question, I don't think that he could have gotten out of this. I think that what we find out through the film is that, you know, in the beginning we think that he's the really even-minded one, the one who's trying to be sensible, but we realize that, like, given like some pressure, some confusion, his visions, he really, really broke. And I don't think that he would have been able to get himself together enough to really get out of it. Yeah, I agree. And what's interesting about it is that I don't find it to be nihilistic though. Yeah. Cause I don't know that there's a lot of room for romance and nihilism. <laughs> it's gonna, yeah. I mean, unless you're Hellraiser, you know, Hellraiser is like the one thing where it's like, ah, like, Let's let's fuck ourselves into the void. You know, I don't really know that 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 other movies have ever successfully done that. And certainly I don't think that that's this film's aim. No, I don't think so. I think it's very much just like about a man, like a good man. You know, these are good people. And, um, you know, it's just like a almost like a I don't know what the word is, like cosmic thing. Like it was going to happen, but it's not. It doesn't mean that nothing matters. Like, yeah, I don't, that's yeah, kind of interesting. It's it. really interesting that that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you feel like really jumped at you, either of you, in this movie? Uh, no, I think I, I touched on the things that that jumped at me and like really made this a a movie I enjoyed. Um, uh, we talked about this before we started recording. Sometimes I'll I'll say like, oh, what would happen? Um, what would happen if you tried to make a version of this movie now? Oh God! Um, it I would be. See this it. is an example where it would just be terrible. I mean, I'd it would be bad. Like I, the only person who I think could maybe do it is like Paul Thomas Anderson, and even still, I don't know if he would be able to do it well enough. Right like, in a way in that would way. sort of make it so that there would be a point. Yeah. Um. But yeah, there's nothing like major left that I wanted to say, except that like I love Julie Christie's that she's really underrated and <laughs> I wish more people knew who she was and watched her films. That's my thing. What else is she in? You can just, just throw she's out some a- <laughs> recommendations. It doesn't even have to be horror movies. Okay, so Julie Christie is wonderful. She's actually one of my favorite actresses. Um, one of my favorite movies that she's in is a 1965 film called Darling. Um, it's directed by John Sleshinger. John Sleshinger. I really tried it. Um, it was a good attempt. Yeah, um, he won the Academy Award for Best Director for Midnight Cowboy. So this is this is a good director. I don't like Midnight Cowboy, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, on record, do not like Midnight Cowboy. Um, Doctor Zhivago. That's that's another good one that she's in. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> She's in, oh my God, she's in, oh, she's in Heaven Can Wait. Wow. She's in Shampoo. She's all over the place. Um, oh, I don't use shampoo, so. <laughs> um, I actually think the most recent thing that she, oh, she's in Finding Neverland too. Look at that. Yeah, the biggest, the, the last really big thing that she did was a 2006 movie called Away From Her, which I believe she has, um. She, I think she has Alzheimer's in it because she's a little, cause she's older than it's like, um, it's, it's good. It's good. I haven't seen it, but I've only heard wonderful things about it. Anyway, people should know who she is. She's great. Cool. <laughs> I'm glad that we could get some cool recommendations out of it. Um, all right. 
I would say uh, this is a good compa- like if you were gonna do a good double feature. Here's where I'll I'll end before we we wrap and give all of our information at the end. Um, if you liked this um, this movie, you should definitely watch uh, the other film that we talked about. Changeling. The Changeling. The Changeling. The Changeling from 1980. Uh, and if you like The Changeling, you should watch this if you haven't. I yeah. think, and I think that if you were going to do a double feature, it's kind of, I mean, you're in for a dark night of the soul because it, cause it's, cause it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's long. They're like, the, neither of them are like super short films and there's, and there's a lot of slow burn to it. But boy, I think they're very interesting complimentary movies. Absolutely. Um, and with that, we'll close. And I will say uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, if you found it on SoundCloud, be aware that it is also available on iTunes. Um, and if you have not yet, please uh, give us a review on iTunes uh, and share it with your friends because that makes it so that we can do more stuff like this. Uh, and thank you, uh, Jody and Nella, for joining me uh, while watching and talking about this movie. And where can people find the two of you online? Um, you can find me on Twitter at J-O-U-R-D-A-Y-E-N. I'm getting better at doing that one. <laughs> and um, Fishnet Cinema, that's a lot of my writing. Jordan Searles, if you search it, remember the I in Jordan, you'll find me. I'm all over the place. And you can find me at Nelikanism on Twitter. And my name is Danny Roth, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Danny Ordinary. That is Danny with one N ordinary also with one n and remember there's no better medicine for the horrors of every day than a little everyday horror thanks for listening <laughs> <laughs>